Do your teeth ever hurt if you happen to scrape cutlery across a saucepan? Or what about your sense of taste? Do you reckon that you're losing your sense of taste as you get older? These are just a couple of the things that Dr. Carl is going to be covering during this episode. We're going to be learning so much stuff as always as he shares the science knowledge. I'm Linda Mariano and get set to learn lots of stuff as we talk about lightning in clouds, dog poo in compost and exploding eggs. Let's get into it. Good morning, doctors. How are you? Peachy Keen, Dr. Holly. Hello. So my question is, obviously, it's pretty general knowledge that as we get older, our eyesight and our hearing start to deteriorate. Um, my question is, though, does our taste buds or our sense of taste, I suppose, start to deteriorate? Because my mom, I noticed as she's gotten older and older, she's needed to have her coffees hotter and hotter. She needs her curry hotter and hotter, like all sorts of stuff. So... I'm just wondering if that's what it comes down to. And this is something that I feel like comes up a bit. My my brother says it about my mum's cooking as she's ah. gotten older. Uh, my fa- whole family says it about Nonna's cooking too, which kind of breaks my heart. But she's putting more spicy stuff in it. Yeah, that there's just like having to put extra taste in it or they can't quite taste it as well. Right, and uh, with some of the French painters, I think Monet, his paintings gradually changed in colour, uh, reflecting the fact that he was blocking with the cataracts in his eyes blue from the outside world, so they became, I think I think I got this right, they became more and more yellow. Um, taste changes a lot. In the early days, just after you're born, uh, you've got the taste buds pre-tuned, as it were, preconditioned, pre-wired to reflect what your mother ate. And so if your mother ate curries or really bland food, you really like one or the other. That's on a background of to keep you alive until puberty and you have babies, you've got to dislike bitter food because um, while bitter foods can be good for you, they can also be poisonous. There are some poisons. There's a whole range of poisons which are all bitter. So before you've had babies and around that time, it's good to dislike bitter foods. And then once you get past the having the babies, then it's more important to like bitter foods such as Sinegrin, S-I-N-E-G-R-I-N, a chemical in broccoli, which is anti-cancer. So it's you're playing out the long term and the short term. And then on top of that is the inevitable de- degradation. So if you're still alive kind of after 20 and you've had a baby, you know, consider yourself lucky. And and, and, and they do fade away and it all changes. Um, yes, you're, you're right. They do tend to go, especially the sense of smell. Smell is very important in taste. And so you can still have the same taste since the bud's still there. But if you lose your sense of smell, that's an important part of that holistic impression of taste. And you don't realize it. And then you lose the apparent taste, even though you've just lost your sense of smell. So sense of smell and taste. Come together. Oh, so what you do with your nonna is when she's cooking the food, Mm. have a fan blowing really spicy smells (laughs) into the kitchen and then when she cooks it and tastes it, she'll think that it's suitable for you guys and then you'll be happy. That would be a bit kind of surreptitious though, wouldn't it? I think she'd think it was really weird if I brought a fan into the kitchen and I was blowing (laughs) Spicy blowing, food. Blowing food and food smells into her butt. Or yes. you get her clothes in the wash and then um, separately bleach them or, or drench them in really spicy smell so that she's always getting the smell of spiciness around her. And she can enjoy food a bit more. Yeah. Oh, thank you for your call, Dr. Holly. Now, Dr. Charles from Brisbane as well. What's your question this morning? G'day, doctors. Dr. Charles, um, welcome. My question is, Sometimes when I look up in the sky during the day, I can see the moon clear as, but other days I can't see it. Why is that? Ah, okay, well, 
we know that the earth is um, not flat. By the way, there have been allegations on my Twitter feed that I am being paid big bucks by NASA to say that the earth is round and that we went to the moon. Just thought I'd put it out there. Really? Yeah, I'm still waiting for the check. Uh, I'll give you my address later. So um, imagine, let's just, ta- let's just look at it a different way. We'll, pr- we'll forget the earth rotating and spinning and go orbiting around the sun, all that sort of stuff. Just pretend from, you know, where you stand that the earth is apparently stationary, which is a reasonable starting point. You can pick any inertial frame of reference. Okay, there's two objects, two major objects going around us. One is the sun, which goes around once every 24 hours. And the other one is the moon, which goes around us in a month, a month, 28 days. So the sun is sort of going whiz, 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 and the moon is sort of going slowly. And then when you look at that pattern, sometimes you'll see both of them in the sky at the same time, sometimes none of them, and sometimes one and sometimes the other. So that's the way to think about it. They've got different orbital periods, orbital times around the Earth, one day and 28 days. Thank now, you. I, I hope that helps. Does that help you, Dr. It Charles? Does. It does. Cheers for that. Thank you. one 300 Let's jump to Tabitha. What's your science question this morning, Tabitha? Oh, hi, doctors. My science question is how come when I scrape um, rice with a fork out of a saucepan, the noise of the fork on the saucepan makes my teeth really on edge and my mouth feel weird? And even thinking about it makes my mouth feel weird. Ah, makes your mouth. So that's part of your sympathetic nervous response. Okay, the the traditionally given answer, which I'm quoting, and which could be right or wrong, and there may well be a better one, which I haven't found, and if somebody has found it, please um, go to my Twitter feed at Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R-K-R-L or ring the magic number here with the answer. one three hundred o triple five three six. But the traditional answer is that that mimics, that sound mimics the sound of the alarm signal of the primates, the gorillas and the apes. And we split off from the chimpanzees about 7 million years ago, but we've still got some wired in habits from them. So if a gorilla or an ape is sleeping in a tree and it falls out of the tree, it'll spread its arms out in all directions to catch a branch. And if you get a brand new baby, a brand new born one, and you hold it in the palm of your hand, so the head is in the palm of your hand and the heels of the baby are at your elbow and you drop it like one centimetre, so it's not going to hurt it, the arms and legs for the first maybe three weeks of life, or I forget the exact period, will go out. So we've got all these reflexes left over and it's, it's claimed that this is one of them. If anybody's got a better answer, I'd like to hear it. What, what, what do you think, Tabitha? What's your thinking on it? Okay, we'll see if somebody else comes up with a more recent answer because I'm going by something I read about eight years ago. Because it makes me, uh, I mean, I hate the sound of it when that happens, or like unglazed uh, crockery. You know, there's like beautiful ceramics that you can get and it's just like, uh, it it makes that awful sound. Tyler from Bendigo has just texted in Mm -hmm. saying, I get that feeling from the powder on marshmallows. Whoa. Okay, it could be that there's something physical happening with how that t- the powder interacts with the teeth, lips, mouth and tongue or it could be something conditioned from in the past where you had a, a upsetting experience at the same time as you had some marshmallow powder coming down your gullet. It's the gorillas running with marshmallows in their hands. <laughs> or it's the gorillas running with the marshmallows, using them as weapons. <laughs> Jack from Karuna. Good morning, Dr Jack. Hello. Hello, Hello Jack. Uh, hello. Hello, Dr. Hello. Jack. Welcome. Hello. Hello, Jack. You so, got a question uh, for us or a comment, Dr. Jack? So, 
why does upside down lightning go up instead of down? Ah, well, your normal lightning bolt goes down and up, but you don't normally see the up one. So charge builds up uh, between the bottom of the cloud and the ground. I think the bottom of the cloud is negative, the ground is positive, and eventually, and we're not too sure exactly the process by which that happens, and eventually a spark jumps out of the cloud. By the way, about one and a half lightning bolt, one and a half billion lightning bolts per year over the whole planet most per year, most of them at the equator, and 90% of all the lightning bolts you don't see, they're inside the cloud, from one part of the cloud to the other, so only 10% make it down to the ground. So the charge is built up, and the lightning bolt stutters out about the length of an Olympic swimming pool, about 50 metres, and they're 55 actually, they reckon, and then it sort of stops and then hunts for another low-resistance pathway. If it's sort of wet, with a bit of minerals in the air in that direction, it'll go in that direction. And so it'll keep on stuttering its way left, right, left, right, 55 metres at a time, heading down towards the ground, average speed of, um, uh, how much is it? I think it's 100 kilometres, 150 kilometres, yeah, 100 kilometres a second, and you can see that. You can see the lightning bolt coming down. It carries maybe a couple of hundred amps, maybe twice or three times as much as your house is allowed to draw from the grid, and the actual bolt itself is about the thickness of your thigh. When it gets close to the ground, it finally makes contact, and then a return stroke comes up because there's lots of charge lying around, and this return stroke you don't see. It's carrying not a hundred or so, a couple of hundred amps, it's carrying thousands and tens of thousands. It's not travelling at a hundred kilometres a second, but a hundred thousand kilometres a second. So it's just too fast for Too us fast. To it's see. a third of the speed of light. If you've got the ultra, ultra high speed scientific military cameras, you might get two steps on the way up. One when it's sort of halfway f- uh, from the ground, another one when it's in the cloud. So you don't see the individual bolt going up, but you get this sort of flash of light, of, of brightness coming from it. And that's where most of the brightness comes from, but you don't actually see the upward strength of the human eye only with the ultra-high-speed cameras. Does that help, Dr Jack? Yes, it did. Okay, just a final little bonus for you. If you've got all of the energy from all of the lightning bolts on Earth and shared it out equally between each person, it would only give you enough energy per person to boil up enough water for a couple of cups of tea per day. Oh, I like tea. Yeah, it shows you that making tea is really energetic. So when I was a hippie, I discovered this living in the bush because... You're still a hippie, Dr Carl. Thank you. That's the nicest thing anybody said to me for the last ever. So you need a human being to bring water from the creek to you and then you need another human being to light a fire to give you the, the heat. So hot water out of a tap is just an amazing thing and it's so energy hungry and yet we're so used to it, we don't think about it in a country like us where we're wealthy. But in the poor countries, you still have humans, usually females, carrying the water and then bringing the wood. Wow. You're chatting to Dr Carl this morning, our favourite hippie, talking science, Ashley from Nelson Bay. What's your question? Uh, hi, doctors. How are we today? Doctor, Good. Very well. Thank you, Dr Ashley. Um, my question's about essential oils. They seem to be all the rage at the moment and I just really wanted to know, do they actually have health benefits or are they a bit of a gimmick? Uh, they're a bit of a gimmick. They have caused gynecomastia, in other words, abnormal breast tissue growth in uh, pre in boys who haven't reached puberty yet. That's tea tree oil and lavender oil. Overwhelmingly, they're safe 
and they don't cause any harm unless you have too much and they don't cause any good but they smell nice and, and, and they when they evaporate they don't leave a stain if they're the real essential oil. Like you can get the essential oil and put on some tissue paper and it just sort of vanishes with, without a stain and they're called essential because they're supposedly the essential flavour of that tree or plant or herb and I really like them, but I'm not. I don't have them for the health benefits because it's never been proven. And in fact, in some cases, they can be slightly toxic. But they they're really nice. And if they're not too expensive, go for them. I love the smell of them. Hey, here's a quick follow up. Yeah. Uh, just about them being a little bit dangerous. Uh, there's someone that's texting saying we have. Uh, is it true that we have essential oil diffusers that are dangerous to cats? Whoa, okay, cats are different from us and cats and dogs can be both killed, and I find this tragic, by chocolate. So they've got different sensitivity to chemicals as we do. I believe that while we can be, in an extreme case, killed by the funnel web spider venom, a dog can't. So I'd be prepared to believe that there'd be a difference that the cats, some cats could be damaged by it. So go looking on Google Scholar and on veterinary sites and they would have the real information. Oh, so, right. Ashley, does that kind of help? Do you, do you, do you love essential oils? No. Uh, she's, she's, she's gone. Okay. Uh, Richie from Brisbane, Hello, uh, what is your science question this morning? Good morning, doctors. Dr. Richie, you lay it on us. Um, so I've, I've recently been diagnosed and having treatment for hemochromatosis and my GP told me a tale of it coming from Viking ancestry and I wanted to know if there's actually any sort of fact or basis of that. Yeah, so hemochromatosis, hemo uh, meaning iron. No, no, it doesn't. That's ferro. So hemo is blood. Chrome, maybe that means colour. Osis, I think, means a state of. What is the origin of that word? Anyway, so hemochromatosis is basically iron overload. It can happen from eating too much iron. So um, we have mechanisms for bringing iron into our bodies, but not a mechanism for stopping us from absorbing it if we've got too much. So there are ways you can have too much. You, the usual way is by a blood transfusion. You have too many of them, you get too much iron. But overwhelmingly, it's inherited. There's different types of inheritance and about 10% of people in the northern part of the world, the Scandinavians and the Irish and the British, 10% of them are carriers of the main genetic type, but there's a whole bunch of different types. So there is a, you can say that there is a tendency for it to be a Viking disease. Yes, you are a proud, noble Viking. There you are. Right. And what would the benefit be of having the gene? Um, wow. I'd have to look up the evolutionary biology of it. Um, because you're making too many. Yeah. Because the, the, Unfortunately, it can knock off the di- uh, cause diabetes by knocking off the beta. I, I don't know any benefits. There, I, I failed you. I'll go looking it up in the break. If somebody can ring in, that'd be lovely. One three hundred oh triple five three six. Let's jump to Tassie now with Steve. What's your science question, Steve? Good day, doctors. How are you going? Hey, Peachy Keen. Um, my question is: Would it ever be worth it or viable to put desalination? like plants all around the coast of Australia and sort of turn salt water into fresh water and pump it into like drought affected areas and stuff like that. I use the word worthwhile and that depends on how much money you're prepared to spend. Remember the motto of the American Air Force, with enough energy, a pig will fly. If you've got enough money, you can get rivers 
of fresh water coming out of the desalination plants. It's just really, really expensive with our current technologies and our current energy costs. But yes, it would work. With regard to droughts, uh, there's a background that in Australia, we have a long history of being the driest inhabited continent on Earth. Um, Secondly, with climate change, the weather bands are moving from the equator towards the poles at about 50 kilometres a decade, 5 kilometres a year, 500 kilometres a century. And so if what was north of you in Australia was dry, well, it'll come over you. And already uh, the wine growers in Tasmania are moving into... uh, Sorry, the wine growers in Victoria are moving into Tasmania. And the French Champagne people, they're allowed to put a certain small percentage of uh, of wine that's not from Champagne into their wine and they've started buying up bits of Tasmania as well. So, Mm. and the other factor is that every time we have an El Nino, a few years later we have a big fat drought. So it's not a surprise. What we need is... um, planning and the response I've been kind of seeing is the politicians are saying hey scientists guys do something about the drought in the next two hours you can't do it obviously we'll cut your funding this is a long-term plan where we need to have the farmers involved with their crops and the farmers really care long term we've got to give them a go and it's not it's not a just let's rush in in emergency let's have a long-term plan that acknowledges climate change is real and Dr Madeline from Norcott in Victoria what's your science question Hi, doctors. How are you? Very well. Thank you, Dr. Madeline. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I was hoping you could um, help with the debate between me and my partner. He thinks that it's good to leave the dog poop from our dog on the uh, nature strips versus me, who I know it's socially acceptable to pick it up. And so we're wondering uh, if you had any thoughts on that. Well, the trouble with leaving it there is that people walk on it when they don't notice it, then bring it into the house and it's really stinky. So obviously the thing to do is to pick it up, but what do you do with it after that? In my case, originally I'd just hold it in a plastic bag, um, would then drop it into the toilet and flush it away, and then I suddenly realised that it was concentrated goodness. And this takes us back to the whole um, dung beetle thing. So cows were not endemic to Australia. They were brought in by the early white settlers. And the cow poo is a big, wet, sloppy thing as opposed to the ones that have been here in Australia for tens of hundreds of thousands of years. And the trouble was that it would kill the local grass. And so the dog poo, if you just leave it there, is too concentrated and it will kill the local grass. And I'm kind of thinking the best thing to do is to chuck it into the compost because compost is pretty good at eating most things. Now, I'd just like to hear from somebody, is that a good idea or a bad idea? There's no particularly bad germs in it and the compost will... I love the way the compost takes in everything you've got and then suddenly it's turned into brown soil. How does it do that? Mm. And I'm about to do a run um, next weekend to spread it out again. So, Madeline, my guess is composting. If you, but if you haven't got a compost, then it's the toilet and then it's into the general sewage system. So at least it doesn't get onto people's shoes and into their houses. And I think if you have houses where there are only men living in the house, um, one third of their coffee tables have dog poo on them because they come home and they put their feet on the coffee table. That's there's no... disgusting. I know. Yeah, well, it's the way it is. Yeah. So, Madeline, is that kind of helpful to you or is it just that leaving you with help. more questions? 
Yeah, a little bit, but that's all right. Thank you so much, doctors. Thank there's you, Dr. a uh, there's a couple of texts that have come in. Uh, one person says it's a massive no for cat and dog poo in compost. Oh, okay. Um, why is that? I, I, I don't know. They haven't signed off with they, a. I'm a professional, uh, but why. I'm sure that they are. Uh, someone else says unless the proper precautions are followed, both cat and dog manure can be harmful to human health. Uh, the primary hazard present in dog manure is roundworms. Oh, roundworms! So you don't want to get them into your compost. So, uh, however, canine feces can be used in the garden if the waste is first composted properly. Oh, I oh, so you can ne- got- oh, so you can get the compost into the garden, but not into f- vegetables, mm. right? So you can use the compost for your flowers, but not for your eating, ve- not for the things. eating type thing. Okay. And, and we have an answer here: um, an advantage of hem- hemochromatosis. Well, back in times when the world was a lot more bloody, read the book by Stephen Pinker, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which tells you that we are living in the most peaceful time ever in the human race. End of diversion, back to the story. Back in times when the world was more aggressive, you go into battle and lose a bit more blood than the other person. Ah, yeah. Okay. But really, we man, go. we should just all love each other and not have wars, man. Like, just chill out. That's right. What? 300. What do you want to talk about in the science world today? Brendan from Maitland. What's your question, Brendan? Hey, guys. How are you going? Very go good, Dr. Brendan. Thank you for ringing in. All right. Um, so I've been watching ants. Like, when it, when it rains, they run extremely fast over, you know, just for a little ant. Uh, I was wondering if they were the size of a dog, how fast could they actually run? Um, they run about, either, the way you measure it is in body lengths per minute or second. And they'll do about 10 body lengths a second, roughly, uh, and body lengths per second, which works out only for humans, it works out to about 50, 60 kilometres an hour. Now, I don't know how you do it for a dog. I've never looked that one up because we humans are long, but that's not related. Oh, yeah, our body length. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm guessing somewhere around 50 kilometres an hour and then f- because I know a little bit of astronomy, uh, then multiply it or divide it by 10. So somewhere between um, 5 and 500 kilometres an hour. Astronomers oh, are like... Yeah, astronomers are like that. Like I was asking somewhere them how much... Somewhere between 5 and 500. Yeah, orders of magnitude, So, uh, which means by 10. And so with regard to the amount of gold manufactured by those two neutron stars which ran into each other a while ago, uh, the amount of gold manufactured was either was somewhere between 10 times the mass of the Earth and 10,000. Yeah, that's close enough. Okay. Yeah, yeah, close enough. <laughs> so, look, I, I, I don't know. I think it's probably around 50 kilometres an hour ballpark figure guess. We need to wait until you create the machine that blows things up or shrinks them. Honey, I shrunk the kids style. Ah, oh, I right. love one of those. Hey, uh, Dr. Carl's chatting to you this morning and Dr. Elise from New South Wales, what is your question this morning? You're on Triple J. Hi, um, my question is how come when I sneeze or like cough, my back gets a bit itchy? Ah, upper back, lower back, middle back, centre or sides um, or the whole back? Sides. Sides. And near your ribs or below your ribs and where your tummy is? Um, above my ribs. Right. So it's sort of where, where the ribs are. Okay, so I'm thinking that you're getting, as you sneeze, a sudden shock wave. So you build up the pressure in your airways, in your lungs, and then you release it and there's a sudden shock that ripples through your rib cage. And then that's then affecting the skin on top of it and then somehow 
affecting the nerves for itch. Okay, now we'll just do a little diversion. So itch nerves have only been known for about the last 15, 20 years. We don't know that much about them. In your skin, you've got uh, fibres of you know, connective tissue going in every which way. And when you have a cut, your body, to try and get you back as soon as possible, says, no, forget all this having the fibres going every which way. I'll just have them going across the wound, you know, like jumping the gap. So they're all lined up and you, that's why you can see a scar. And because they're all lined up in a different way, sometimes a wound will itch because a nerve for itch can get stuck in there and get a bit of pressure on it. So I'm thinking that the nerves for itch are being with you at your age and height. How, how old are you? You're 10? I'm 11. 11. Okay. So at that age, you've still got some growing to go. So th- it might not have happened when you were younger and with a bit of luck, it won't annoy you as you grow taller. You, you'll grow out of it and, and the location of those nerves for itch and how the pressure wave from the coming out from the sneezing affects them, that'll go away and it won't bother you too much. How long, just one last thing, how long does the itching last for? Like a, a second or a minute or an hour? Um, It depends. Probably about 10 minutes. Really? Wow. Now, that is annoying, isn't it? And when, yeah. did, when did it begin? Like in the last week or year or all your life? Um, since I can remember. Wow. Ah. Well, I've got to do a story on each for you. Thank you, Dr. Elise. Thank now you. to Kara Jong. We're chatting science on 1300 Lewis, what is your question about your food? Hi, Dr. Carl, Dr. Linda, how are you? Very well, Dr. Lewis. Um, so I'm often eating my uh, food out of Tupperware because I'm always at uni and um, heating it up in the microwave, but I'm just wondering why it gets colder after being in the microwave than it is when it's heated up in the oven. I'm guessing that if the food has the same amount of heat energy all the way through, there is no difference. And I'm guessing that in the oven it's there for hours and it's heated all the way through. In the microwave, it starts at the outside, the heat, and then just gradually works its way in towards the centre. So you can end up with the outside warm and really warm and the, out- the inside not quite so warm. So I'm reckoning that's what it is. With regard to the Tupperware, that is a good insulator. So it's probably one of the better insulators you can have. So it's not going to drain away the heat from the outside. So I'm just going with the fact that you're not nuking it for enough. Nuke it for longer, I think, and see if that works. I also remember, uh, Dr. Carl, you once gave me a tip. I don't even have a microwave anymore, but... Um, when putting stuff in the microwave because the kind of, is it, should I call them lasers? What are the things? The that, microwave radiation. Yeah, yeah, yep. the, the, the waves, they come out at kind of all different angles that it's worth it to kind of move your food around. Yes. so Because otherwise it's just hitting the same spot. So I'll get like one corner of a, my second day lasagna that's really heated up in the right-hand corner, but then the middle or like the left hand's not done. So I need to stop it halfway through, move it around. They've got two ways of doing that, trying to counteract that. The first is they've got a little fan that spins around to bounce the microwaves mechanically, a fan mm-hmm. with metal blades. And the second one is they do the rotation. But you can end up with something in the dead centre or maybe a circle two centimetres out from the dead centre. If you go fill all the way around, the microwaves didn't get there. Special spot. Special spot here on Triple J. Uh, Let's head to Early Beach. Kirsten, now you have a science question for Dr. Carl this morning. What is it? How you going, guys? Very well, thank you. The science behind water divining. I can get two bits of wire, charge them up, like with my hand, walk around, find a bit of... I can find water, I can find electrical cables, I can stomp my feet and they'll neutralise out. I can tell how deep they are. My daughter can do it. 
heaps of people that have never tried it before. Fucking show them they can do it. What's the science behind it? How does it work? Now, have you been an advisor or water diviner consultant for people who live on acreage and there's a bit of a drought on and so they're paying you, say, five or $10,000 a hole to advise them on to where to drill for the water? Is that how... Negative. I've been an excavator operator and we dig around power and main water and stuff like that and we just utilised it for that so we don't dig up stuff that's going to cost us lots of money. But um, even right. around home, you know what I mean, you bury something and you go, oh, where do I bury that? You just walk around and find it. And you can find... I've seen an old fella using different size nuts on bits of wire and he can actually tell you how much water flows down there. And do you feel a definite twang or reaction from the wires? No, not at all. You don't. You can nail, look, You can grip them hard enough to stop them spinning in, but it's pretty difficult. You're not. You're not trying to. You just oh. want to hold them in your hands firmly, and when you walk, they will cross over. They'll point in for water. Right. They'll point out for power. Some people get them point in for water and power. There's just I don't know why it's different between some people and the others, but some people can't pick it up at all. Some people are about a meter off where. Me and my daughter will get directly above where it is and you, you do a couple of different walks to get right where it is from different angles and then you stomp your feet as long as you don't have shoes on. For every stomp of one foot, like every time you lift one foot off the ground, it's 100 mil down. And it's accurate, really accurate. And have you ever failed? Never. Okay, always at that point... There. I always find I'm, the air and I always find the water. Okay, when you just said you never failed, at that stage I'm beginning to get a little sceptical. Just, well, yeah, it's... There. What's the okay. Well, when you do studies where you get people to try and find electrical power and water in pipes underground, there's already been laid there. They say I can do it, and then you run water or electricity through the various pipes or wires, and they don't know which wires or pipes, and you don't know either because some third party is doing it. Under those conditions, they fail. Now there is a prize of a million dollars from the Australia from the American Skeptic Society for your skill, if you can prove it. Under trained studies, you want a million dollars. So should he have a little Google for Yeah, it? look, contact the... I'm kind of sceptical, but a small part of me thinks that the people who do it with regard to water can actually read the country. And I spoke with one guy who is a, a pilot and very knowledgeable, and he was saying how he got one guy in because he was short of water and they had no rainwater. And the guy said, over there, if you go down 90 metres, you'll hit something. And over at that one, if you go down 50 metres, you'll hit something. And each of the holes... There was money on this. You know, there was skin in the game. We're talking $10,000 a hole. They found it. And then there's all the people who claim, I can get it 100% of the time, but they don't document it. And anything that works 100% of the time, I have real difficulty in believing. You've got to document it. But on the other hand, contact the Australian Skeptic Society and they can actually test it. And if you, in fact, truly have the ability, mate, there's a million bucks in it for you. Brooke from Hilltop. Hello, Dr. Brooke. What, Come on uh, what wisdom do you need this morning? Morning, doctors. Hello, well, um, thank you for coming in. I've got a question about when the sun sets in the afternoon, I always notice that there's one really bright star that's close to the moon, and I'm just wondering if it's a planet or what the star's called. Um, usually it's Venus. So in our solar system, you've got the sun, and then uh, working out, you've got Mercury. That's pretty small and pretty far away. And then you've got Venus. So... If you're on Earth, which is the next planet out, and you're looking towards the sun, 
Well, you can't see much because the sun is so bright it blocks out most of the stars. By the way, you can see about half a dozen stars in the sky in daytime if you know where to look. But anyway, so the sun is going down and you're looking in that direction towards the centre of the solar system and usually Venus is off to one side or the other. It's also there in the morning when the sun rises and most of the civilizations, the cultures on Earth thought that the morning star and the evening star were actually two different objects and it was the Greeks who first worked out that Venus was both there in the morning and the afternoon. So usually, practically all the time, is Venus. If you're interested in this sort of stuff, there's a wonderful website called Star Sky and Space with De- Deborah Bird, B-Y-R-D. Look up Deborah Bird. I think it's called Stars and something. I've forgotten the name of it. But Deborah Bird, she's just brilliant and she gives you all these hints and she'll say, okay, if you go out now, you'll see the planet such and such if you look to the moon at such and such a time. So she, if, if you like that stuff, she'll be your best friend forever. Perfect. Dean from Toronto. What's your science question, Dean? Oh, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Dean. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I just uh, ringing up my friend and I go fishing a lot at night in the local lake, and um, basically, sort of any interaction with the water, throwing something into it or splashing, it creates like a bioluminescence or like white light. I was just wondering why and how that happens. Wow! Do you, do you get it most nights rather than just occasionally? Uh, yeah, we don't get to go fishing that often, but pretty much every time we go. Wow, you lucky people. That sounds beautiful. Yeah, I've seen really bright luminescence in bioluminescence in the ocean only maybe a dozen times, and so you're lucky every time. Okay, so it's due to a chemical called Lucifer. That goes back in history to the beginning of the universe and God, and God had his best mate Lucifer, and they were besties until God said, look, I don't like you anymore, you're the devil, and that's why the, Luc- the devil's name is Lucifer, and, and he used to be God's best mate. So he called him Lucifer the light giver. And so the chemists have found this chemical which they called luciferin and luciferase. And so these are the chemicals that many living creatures, especially in the ocean, have. Um, There's a long history of this. The Romans used to use, wait for it, dried fish skins as a way of giving a weak illumination at night light. So it's used for camouflage, for signaling each other, for mating, all sorts of things. So, but it's a, common, a relative, surprisingly common phenomenon, bioluminescence. But it's glad you get to enjoy it, Dean. I'm, yeah. I'm jealous. Yeah, no, it's really cool. love watching it. <laughs> that is lovely. one three hundred oh triple five three six chat and science with Zoe this morning. What's your question? Oh, good morning, doctors. Good morning, Dr. Zoe. Welcome. I had um, a bit of an incident in the kitchen um, not that long ago where um, I had hard, I thought I'd hard boiled some eggs in a saucepan and I'd put them aside, put water on them. And then for lunch, I cracked one open and um, I noticed that it was still a little bit soft boiled. So um, I put it in the microwave for like 30 seconds. And then when I took it out, I put it on the bread and I went to cut it open and it just exploded everywhere, like all over my face and all over the roof and everywhere. So I was just wondering why that sort of happened. Ah, with the egg, when you took it out, was it sort of tight or, or tense like a drum or was it still soft and floppy? Yeah, it was a little bit tight. Yeah, so what's happened is that somewhere inside, maybe 
an area the size, a volume the size of a pea, because the microwave heating is not that even, a bit of it could have heated up to over 100 degrees centigrade. So that little volume, the size of a pea, maybe a lot smaller, maybe the size of a pinhead, would have expanded in size by 1,700 times as it turned into steam. But the structural integrity of the skin was enough to hold in. The moment you cut it, you release the pressure egg on the ceiling, you said. Yeah, oh, God. on the ceiling everywhere. Oh, oh and you it would have stunk though. as well. <laughs> oh, but you, did you get? You didn't get a, a burn. No, oh, no. When You're it lucky. hit me, like it, like because I was sort of, I was in shock because it popped like a cork, and I was in shock, and I'm thinking, I was waiting for the burning sensation, and it wasn't, it was, didn't feel hot. Because my oh. partner had said that maybe the inferiority, like the impurities in the knife, had actually. Like it made it explode because the oh. egg was superheated or something. Yeah, that, that would work. They could have acted as a nucleation centre to make it explode. Oh, Zoe. Thank you. Sorry I'm to sorry. hear about that. I'm glad that. you didn't get burnt, though. <laughs> I'm sorry about the kitchen, but I'm glad that your face was not injured. That makes me very happy. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode as we hung out with Dr. Carl to chat science. I'm Linda Mariano. And if you do love learning stuff, then you can check out the other podcast that I host, which is the Triple J Inspired Podcast. Look it up and you get to learn about lots of your favourite songs, including Franz Ferdinand, talking about where their hit Take Me Out came from. Lyrically, it came about because we'd watched a film the night before. Enemy at the Gates. I don't oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the, the sort of the theme for the film it's it's about the Battle of Stalingrad, and um, it's it's essentially about two snipers that are, are kind of stalking each other, and uh, just waiting for the other one to make a move. So when the other one makes a move, then they can take them out. Those snipers are demoralizing my army. They send their top marksman. It seems he's come all the way from Berlin to stop you. And so that became like a metaphor. Uh, I guess it's all like the lines in the what became the chorus, the the like the I know I won't be leaving here uh with you. I'm just a crosshair. I'm just a shot, then we can die. It kind of could be a romantic situation or uh, Jude Law as a sniper. <laughs> maybe maybe a little bit of both. Yeah, maybe a little bit of both. So check it out if you're interested, like, subscribe, do all that stuff, and I'll catch you next time.